busy. How often is that the word that we use to describe our life when people ask us how we're doing? If I was honest with all of you, that's probably the answer I give about 99% of the time. And when I think back to my conversations with coaches out there, uh, people in general, I think the answer that they give is busy. I think we wear busyness like a badge of honor in today's day and age. Uh, We think the more busy we are, the more important we are. But I also know that not many of us actually like feeling busy all the time, especially when we know it's just adding to more and more stress in our life and we're feeling conflicted, uh, conflicted about how we choose to spend our time. Now, the conversation you're going to listen to today, it it blew me away. It was a truly life-changing conversation for me. But to really understand why that is, I think you actually need a little bit of a backstory about today's episode. Um, so typically, when we have a guest, right, we have a chat before we start actually recording. Now, something about me is that I always try to be respectful of any guest's time, no matter who they are. And I'm probably even a little more conscious of time when we have someone like Greg McEwen on the podcast, because I realize this could be a really tight hour as far as they have other obligations. Well, Greg was in absolutely no rush, all right? He's one of these very special people who makes you feel he genuinely cares about you. He made me feel like there was absolutely nowhere else he'd rather be than talking with me. Uh, We laughed and, and talked for nearly an hour off the air as he was just genuinely curious about myself and our podcast. And it was clear to me by the end of it all, right, how authentic of a person he truly is and how his philosophy and and discipline of essentialism, how it has helped him become the person he was created to be and build the life that he wanted for himself and his family. Now, I'm sharing this with you because I want you to know what I realized. And that is this, this philosophy, this discipline, essentialism, it works. And in today's episode, Greg's going to share with us some very personal disciplines a system to implement within our life that's going to help us to stop hurrying around, to stop choosing to be busy, and instead choose only the things that will make the highest possible contribution towards our purpose in life. You're listening to the Coaching Culture Podcast. I'm JP Nurbin alongside my co-host, Nate Sanderson. Every week in around 30 minutes, we're giving you strategies and tools for you to grow as a leader and build your culture. We know the reason why most teams struggle and that is because they have a dysfunctional culture. This leaves coaches frustrated with entitled players, losing seasons, and toxic environments. And at Thrive on Challenge, we believe that the silver bullet is a transformational culture. We help coaches to create and sustain transformational cultures so they can strengthen relationships, raise standards, and inspire others to make an impact. To learn more about our workshops, retreats, and mentorship program, Go to thriveonchallenge.com. You can also get the Coaching Notes PDFs for every Coaching Culture episode by subscribing to our weekly newsletter. You're listening to episode 143, Stop Being Too Busy and Start Being Disciplined in Your Pursuit of Less with Greg McEwen. So Greg, I, I know this is a lifelong journey in becoming an essentialist, right? And I have applied essentialism within my team. I've made changes in my own leadership. But the area that I have really struggled is applying within my own life. Honestly, I'm tired of being tired. I'm tired of being busy all the time. And I'm probably most tired of struggling to do everything, trying to pack everything in. I'm 
not an essentialist, right? More of an aspiring essentialist. So my question is, how can someone like myself or the, the many other leaders out there who listen to this podcast start to apply essentialism within their own life? Well, first of all, you're, you're dead on the right mark when you say an ongoing process. You know, the subtitle of the book is The Disciplined Pursuit of Less. And that's really part of the mindset shift is that it is not a sideshow of your life. Essentialism isn't one more thing to stuff into your already overstuffed life. It, it becomes the overarching lens with which you are looking at every day. So every day becomes an essentialist experiment. And, and your goal is to be able to wake up excited about the meaningful work ahead of you and to end the day feeling satisfied that you did the most important things that day. And what I've learned as a, a pretty good rule of thumb is that there's always enough time to do what's most essential. So whenever a day feels out of control, too busy, where we've we're feeling busy but not productive, stretched too thin at work or at home or both, when our day is just feeling hijacked by other people's agenda for us, when that becomes our reality, especially a few days in a row, it's time to go back and to say, well, what really is essential today? And so literally, you take out a sheet of paper every morning and you review your long-term goals Make sure that those things really are the most important areas of your life. And from it, identify the top things you want to get done. Put them in priority order. Uh, you know, maybe you put 10 things on that list. Um, put it in priority order and you cross off the bottom nine. <laughs> <laughs> and, you, and you say that top item, that's what I'm investing in. I'm going to first work on that. I'm going to try and push out all of the other noise make progress on that item. And then once you've done with that, you move to the second and so on. And the days that I don't do the process I just described, I can feel it becoming more frenetic and frantic. And on the days that I do it, which are more often than not, I can feel everything calms down. You just know this is, this is the work I'm to do today. This is the right work at the right time. So I'm going to approach it in the right way. You get to enjoy working on those tasks. You don't feel like a function of other people's agenda for you. You don't live in your inbox. So I think it really is this disciplined pursuit, especially in this very daily uh, routine and habit that you start to be able to live an essentialist lifestyle. One of the things I've heard you share about along the same lines is creating space for reflection, and I would extend that to just an awareness of where is my schedule and where are the decisions that I've been making, the things that I've said yes to taking me. And I've heard you mention, you know, every 90 days that you should take a day to reprioritize and to take a macro view of things. And that during the week, you should set aside an hour or two to be able to make sure that your weekly schedule and your weekly decisions are matching up to that, that vision that you set apart, um, you know, during your longer reflections. I wonder, you know, if you could talk a little bit about um, the importance of that, because I've heard you say that hour can be the most important hour in your week and why that, that pattern of reflection is so important. Yes, there's a, what we're talking about here is a cadence of reflection. 
where prioritization isn't one more thing, it is the work of life. So there's the daily, uh, you know, huddle. Uh, I'm just, we're just describing where you actually take a few minutes um, to prioritize, but then an hour a week, if you can, if you can do it, it's the most, it's become precious to you. You will feel so satisfied every week that you do it. What I do in that exercise is I will go through and first list all the things I'm grateful for from the week so that you're celebrating that success. You're pausing on it for a moment. You're seeing what good is already happening. And that's not just good morality to, to live in gratitude. Uh, it's also really practical because you want to build on what's already working that's important. So you're grateful for the things that matter, and then you, it gives you a clue as to what to do next. So that's the first step in my weekly uh, you know, review, is to just simply write down all the things I'm grateful for. From that, I then identify what are the things that are my, uh, my essential projects for the week. Uh, I divide those essential projects into three categories. The first category is protecting the asset. Uh, this is just one or two projects, you know, normally not more than that. And it doesn't include everything that you could do to protect the asset in your life. It doesn't include all of the um, physical, emotional, spiritual th practices and habits that you might have. It's choosing one or two that you think, I'm really underinvesting in this right now. now. If you're not doing exercise right now, you might say, okay, I'm going to exercise four times a week, you know, th th this week. 20 minutes each time to go play tennis. Now, that would be a project you could complete by the end of the week. Uh, yeah, so the first category of projects is protect the asset. That's first. And I'm telling you, even if you didn't do anything else in your weekly review, but what I just described, it would be transformative for a lot of people mm -hmm. because people often get the order exactly wrong. So there's three things in the order. First, protect the asset project. Second, is projects that, well, protect the family asset. Uh, this could be activities that you need to do to provide for your family. It could be relationships that need to be worked on. You might have a teenager that you're struggling with a little. Maybe there's a, uh, you know, relationships you can see that need to be developed. It's those most important relationships. Next. First, protect the asset. Secondly, protect the family, protect the special relationships, the most important relationships. Third, other. What are the two or three projects in the rest of your life outside of that sphere? Total, I would recommend no more than seven. One or two in each area, maybe two or three. You know, you've got to choose and be a little flexible depending upon what's going on. But always in that order. I literally find that people do their projects in the opposite order typically. They most clear about their other projects mm -hmm. and they let their most important relationships wane, atrophy, and then they put their own asset the very last. If you reverse the order, you find that you can be really healthy, mentally, emotionally, spiritually, you can create that core asset, keep it strong. That allows you to be positive when you're actually with the people that matter most to you. 
which generates positive momentum so that when you go to your work, they're not resenting you and you're able to focus on the people that you have committed to in that category. If you get the order right, you can end up succeeding in all of them. If you get the order wrong, I'm guaranteeing you, you will not get all three. Mm-hmm. Well, it's interesting you say that uh, you would recommend limiting that list to seven. There's a book or a quote in the book from John Maxwell that you referenced where he said, you cannot overestimate the unimportance of practically everything. You know, and when I think about the coaching lifestyle, to, to whittle it down to seven things when there's, you know, so many tasks related to your team and you, the administration of your team and the relationships on your team. And then, as you mentioned, you have your family life and all the other things that are, have, you know, pulling on you. I just think it's such an interesting reflection. You can't overestimate the unimportance of practically everything when we assume that everything we're doing is important because we've chosen to do it. I don't know if you can speak to that dichotomy a little bit. Well, that's, that's why the mindset of essentialism is, is so primary. And that's why I called it essentialism versus essential tool or essential hack or something, because we are so saturated in the belief that everything is almost equally important. And if you have that as your default position, if your mindset makes the world look like that, then you're going to behave as if that is true. So I've sometimes described this as, as, as living like the world is a coal mine. And our job is just to get as much coal from point A to point B. And it's just like basic productivity. And how, far, how much can I get from there to there as quickly as possible? And what essentialism is trying to help people to see is that we've never been in the coal mine. We're in a diamond mine. That that more closely approximates reality. And so that as soon as you see the world that way, as soon as you believe that most stuff is noise and a few things are really valuable, disproportionately valuable, massively more valuable than the rest. Well, if that's true, you would change all of your behavior instantly. You would suddenly say, okay, well, I'm not going to try and do just more stuff. What if I'm just doing all the stuff and leaving all the diamonds? My job is to go and figure out what's essential. And this is suddenly you go, well, of course, I would spend time every day looking and discerning and thinking. And of course, I would sleep so that my mind is in such a state that it could discern between the vital few and the trivial many. And of course, I would spend an hour every week evaluating you know, what matters because I realized that that one hour could improve the value of the, the rest of the 167 hours in the week because they're gonna help you to even see the diamonds so that you can then go after them. So yes, I think it's mindset first because then you'll see things differently and therefore be able to act differently in a spontaneous and almost effortless way. Well, Greg, I appreciate uh, everything that you've shared with us here and we're gonna get you out of here on a couple of quick hitters. Um, And I'm gonna start one here. This may sound a little bit random, but JP and I work with coaches and mentorship and interact with a lot of coaches in a lot of different situations. And I think one of the most common questions that we get asked for an opinion or a perspective on is, should I take another job? I've got somebody knocking on my door. I've got somebody that knows somebody that put my name in and, you know, and all of a sudden they're interested in me. 
And sometimes, as you know, you know, taking that promotion can be a great situation. And other times coaches will take it and they'll look back and think, what was I thinking? You know, if only I would have known. And in the book, you talk about weighing options, that success breeds options. And you have that phrase of if it's not a definite yes, it's a no. And I wonder what you would just say to coaches when they're weighing the opportunities or thinking about other job prospects. What what would you tell them? Well, I was just talking to somebody as part of, um, I, I'm about to launch um, an essentialism podcast, and I was just having a conversation with someone about this, and they emphasized the principle of, uh, of asymmetric rewards. So asymmetric rewards can be defined as something that has um, limited downside, but unlimited upside potential. And so this, I think, becomes a very helpful um, principle for trying to evaluate decisions and choices in the moment. We always have imperfect information. So how can a coach gather information about this opportunity in a way that has almost no downside, but has almost unlimited upside or has potentially unlimited upside? So instead of it simply being a yes or no in that moment instantly, if it is clear, fine. If it's a very clear yes, great. If it's a very clear no, great. Those are the extremes and trust those extremes. But where you're in the middle and you're not sure yet because you don't have sufficient information, how can you get a bit more? Could you go and watch the team? Could you go and talk to a few of the past players? Could you talk to the outgoing coach? What can you do that has very limited risk, but would give you information that would help you quickly to gather potentially valuable information to make your decision? So that's what I would say. Look for those things that have low risk, but high potential reward, uh, or even no risk, but high potential reward. Now, a quick uh, few personal questions, if you don't mind here. If you had to give up one hour of your day what would you give up or stop doing? I think I would, if I, if I had to give up any hour of my day, I would give up television. Um, I, I think television has a, has a place, especially if you're careful in curating what you watch, who you watch it with. It can be quite fun in creating shared memory and, um, and, and a common vernacular is storytelling. And you get to be able to, as a family, for example, reference back to it. So I think there is a place for it. Um, but if I had to cut out an hour, I think that's the hour I would cut out. Uh, in, in, yeah, I mean, I think that's both time and activity. Mm-hmm. Uh, in fact, just recently, I have reduced the amount of time uh, allotted for that in my own life and instead started to read. So my wife and I, we want to read together is a different thing than watching TV together. Uh, It's more default for people to watch TV. I almost said it's easier to, but I'm not sure that's true. It just is more default. It's the more natural thing for people to do currently. But reading, I think, might be as easy or easier than endlessly watching Netflix shows or searching, scanning through. We don't even watch it. We just scan for two hours, don't we? Well, what is it? Can we watch this? Or can we watch this? Or can we watch this? And, and your hours blown through, you know, thinking about what to watch. So I'm not convinced it's actually easier. I think it's just the default setting right now. 
Uh, and just last night, my wife and I read instead. And when we were done reading a chapter of a book that, that she'd started, um, I just didn't feel like watching TV anymore. I had no need for it. I didn't, it, I, it would been satiated. Uh, and instead I had this rich story and language and we'd done it together. So, um, are you yeah, reading aloud to each other when you're doing that? Or are you reading individually just quietly the same chapter? Last night, um, because she'd already read this chapter, she asked me to read it out loud, um, because I hadn't read it and she wanted them to share in it again together. She thought I'd find it really interesting, and I did. Uh, and so it was out loud. And, and going forward, I anticipate that it will be out loud. So you're still having a shared experience. Mm -hmm. uh, you're still having a kind of movie experience. And excuse me for saying this, but when, we, when I scan through some of these movies sometimes, I just some of this content, I just think I don't, I don't want that in my brain. I don't want mm -hmm. that in my soul. It's not, it's not, it's not noble enough. It's not. Some of this programming, and by some I mean quite a lot of it, is not capable of mentoring me. It's not capable of mentoring my family. Some is. I mean, there's some really great classic stuff. I'm not knocking everything. But I want to be mentored when I go for entertainment. I want stories that help me to make wiser decisions going into the future. Uh, and that's what I think great literature can be. I mean, certainly with our children, my wife has read volumes and volumes i mean 50 books in, and then some out loud to them over the years and it has become this rich tapestry of of culture between the children a shorthand in a hundred situations where they can remember that story and that person and that character all, all of them fictional but somehow all of them now a real part of what makes this family culture unique. That's cool that you share that story, just a little personal story on my end. My wife lived in Pennsylvania when I was living in Ireland about 10, 12 years ago, uh, before, you know, before we got married and we were just early on dating. We were doing a long distance relationship and it was by Skype back then. It was like, we were trying to find things to do you know, a year into the relationship. So we started reading a book aloud to each other. And I still to this day, connected with her in such a much more meaningful way through that experience. I truly believe if we hadn't read those couple books, I'm not sure uh, if, we, if the relationship would have sustained it, but it just, it, it sparks such unique conversation rather than just the typical, Hey, how was your day type of thing? So I think that's really powerful and encouraging. I'll definitely, I'll take that myself uh, and maybe suggest that to my wife. Now, on the other flip side, if you had an extra hour a day, I, what would you do with that extra hour? I mean, right now, the answer to that question would be um, I would be playing tennis for that extra hour. Um, I, I like to play tennis with my son, and I play it quite often with him. Uh, but I've moved into monk mode for about the last three or four weeks, uh, working on a new book. Mm -hmm. um, and, of course, the new podcast that I mentioned. And those projects have meant that I've pushed quite unusually uh, the, the, the tennis out. Uh, and so I do think there are times when you can be imbalanced temporarily to be in balance permanently. And that's what this is. It's not been done reactively. It's been done literally in council <laughs> with my wife, with my family, what we need to be focused on, what's important now. And that's what enables me to do it completely without guilt. 
Um, I'm, I'm not I'm not frustrated by this every day, um, and, and neither are they. But if I had an extra hour, that's what it would be. And uh, once we've hit certain targets, that's exactly what will happen again. Now, if we were to ask your son, what's the hardest thing about being parented by an essentialist, what would his answer be? That's an interesting question. I mean, last night he came in uh, before going to sleep. He's just turned 14. Um, and he came in to have a conversation with my wife and I, and we probably talked for the next half hour. Uh, and he was, I mean, I'm just reporting the facts here. What he was <laughs> discussing was, <laughs> was how, I mean, this is literally true. It doesn't sound, it sounds, won't sound true, but he was asked, he, he said, I want to know how you and mum created a family that feels like this because I have other people that I spend some time with sometimes and it doesn't feel the same way. And I really want to know how to do it for my kids later where there's the kids are like really unified and spend time together. And he had these descriptions and that is literally what we talked about. So frankly, I'm not convinced that he would say, oh, this is so hard to be parented by an essentialist because being parented by essentialists means that your parents are investing in you and trying to help you discover your essential unique mission in life and empowering you to say no to things that in fact, even if other people are doing them, don't sound interesting to you or you don't enjoy them anymore. Or they're not your unique and most, you know, your best contribution. So I think that essentialism fits so naturally, so well into a parenting environment that if you're doing it right, uh, it, it, is, it is very much like an asymmetric uh, asset. The downside is very low and the upside can be infinite. It's a very powerful and really inspiring uh, response. And I think that's a great way to finish up today's uh, discussion, which I greatly appreciate it. I know you're starting the essentialism uh, podcast. And, you know, I just thought that's something that uh, you might like to share very briefly, why essentially our listeners should check that podcast out. Well, I mean, they should only check it out if uh, they find themselves often pulled away from what is essential into feeling busy, but not productive feeling stretched too thin, feeling like their day's hijacked by other people. If they find that even though they mean to be doing the essential things, they often get pulled into, the, into this other stuff, they get off track. If they feel that, then this is going to be designed uh, conversations, essential conversations, precisely for this. Uh, and, and I'm personally thrilled about it because it gives me an opportunity to speak directly to people that have talked to me over the years saying, yes, I really love essentialism and I care about this and I want to be more of an essentialist, but I get off track and it's really easy to get pulled off. And so as I was just re-listening to the first episode, which is a, which is a conversation with my wife uh, about the very birth of essentialism, the literal birth of my daughter and the, you know, the, the story behind that, uh, but also this, the early days of writing this and 
trying to bring this out into the world and her role in it and how we you know try to live these ideas as i was re-listening to that before it goes live at the, at the end of may uh, i genuinely got caught up in the story not like oh listening to me or listening to anna just into the story and i felt myself being renewed in reflecting on what was essential now and i just had this very private but happy moment of i think this is going to meet a need in the world i think that every week having one episode on a monday drop that just helps bring people hopefully in an inspiring way hopefully in a gentle way but back to this what's essential is this essential or can i push this away and let it you know let it leave my life so that's it for our conversation with greg um, I remember going to bed after recording. It was like 2 a.m. in the morning in Ireland. Greg lives in California, so it wasn't that late for him. But I remember just laying there thinking about the conversation he and his wife had with his son and thinking to have one of my children feel that way about our family, to feel that they are loved and that it's different here. Like that's success, right? That's success for us as a, a, a father or a mother. It's also success or a coach with their team, right? To, to have our players feel love and that it's different here. And those are the things that we don't want to fail at. I do not want to fail at that when it comes to my family. So I'd encourage all of you to join me as I reread his book. And um, I will be listening to the Essentialist podcast each week and really working hard to keep putting first things first in my life. Um, thanks to Greg for coming on the podcast. Be sure to subscribe to the Thrive on Challenge weekly newsletter to get the coaching notes PDF. I've put down all the disciplines and activities that he covered in this episode. I put them in those coaching notes PDF and you can subscribe to that newsletter in the episode details of this podcast. Thanks for listening.